The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by a polymath physicist, startup founder of companies like SafeWeb, Genomic Prediction, and Authram, among others, I'm not sure, blogger, podcaster, and more. Thank you for joining the broadcast, Steve. How are you doing? I'm great, and it's a it's a pleasure to be on your show. And I, I want to say that I'm a regular listener to your show. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, and I th- I thought I thought that was uh, funny. So yeah, that that's cool. I'm I'm uh, I'm honored that you are uh, a listener. And uh, before we get into some of the topics, you're a guy kind of that's all over the place. And perhaps you know, could you give the audience a quick background of your work, uh, who you are, and your interests? Yeah, I uh, I'm a Chinese American. And I grew up in Ames, Iowa, which is not too far from where you're from, Chicago. Uh, I was a precocious kid. I studied math and physics. My hero, my intellectual hero, was a guy called Richard Feynman, who was a professor at Caltech. And I attended Caltech as an undergrad. Um, I mainly, the main part of my career, the conventional part of my career, has been as an academic scientist, as a professor of theoretical physics. And there I focus on pretty esoteric things like quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, black holes, cosmology, Stephen Hawking kind of stuff, actually, or, or even really kind of very similar to what Feynman worked on when he was alive. But uh, <clears throat> as you mentioned, I've, I've slightly polymathic tendencies, so I get interested in other stuff. And so, for example, uh, right around the time of the first tech bubble, I founded my first uh, technology startup company in Silicon Valley. And subsequently, now I've been a founder or co-founder of four different tech startups in areas. Initially, it was all having to do with information security and encryption, which is you know pretty mathematical in a certain sense. Um, and then lately, it's been more uh, having to do with genomics, computational genomics, things like that. Um, I started the blog in 2004. So I've been blogging for 18 years. I'm waiting for my 20th anniversary of, of blogging coming up. And I cover a lot of topics. I cover economics and geopolitics and technology. Um, I think the reason I got interested in your podcast, I don't remember exactly when, but it's been a while, I would say over a year ago, was <clears throat> you know, I could see that the unipo- unipolar moment is ending. And so geopolitics is going to start becoming real again. And I was kind of amazed at how much energy the US was wasting in the Middle East knowing that eventually it was going to have to pivot back toward the Pacific. And so <clears throat> I was kind of analyzing, you know, the rise of China, the, tech, the technology gap between the West and China, where the economic situation stands, all of that. And, you know, uh, later, I think maybe we'll talk about Ukraine and Russia, but I just regarded it as an amazing uh, geopolitical disaster for America <laughs> that we pushed Russia and China into a very strong partnership here. Whereas I think even a year ago, there was some chance that if the United States played it properly, they could have uh, peeled Russia off from China. And that would have been that would have put China in a very tough, much tougher position. But anyway, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, yeah, I kind of agree with you. And I've been thinking along these lines since 2006, when I say I kind of permanently expatriated. And, you know, on the the shelf behind me, I've got books by like Johan Galtung, who I've interviewed talking about the fall of U.S. empire and and Morris Berman. uh, uh, and others. And yeah, I think the unipolar moment is is over. The question is what so from here on out, what does it look like? And you said 20th anniversary of your blog, if we make it to 2024 without the nukes going off, right? Uh, and so given that you are 
uh, a Chinese American, American Chinese, however you want to slice it. Um, you know, some of the themes that you brought up before the interview were, you know, the big picture U.S. China, the military balance in the Pacific, hypersonics, which I've covered uh, previously uh, regarding Russia, uh, and the Chinese. For me, I think maybe the key point: the Chinese advance and seeming supremacy in the field of technology. Uh, I've lately been saying that what we are living through happens only once a century or centuries, and uh, as you were saying, we're experiencing tectonic geopolitical shifts and what could even possibly be the beginning of a third uh, world war. There are some analysts coming out and saying this. So, you know, when we talk new Cold War, Thucydides trap, U.S.-China, uh, you know, start us off. Where's your mind there? Well, those are all things that I've been really deeply interested in for really a long time. I mean, going back uh, even to the beginning of when I started writing my blog, you'll see some of my first posts I think in 2004, 2005 were actually projections about economic growth rates and when the Chinese would catch up. And so I'm I'm on record as having made predictions over 15, 20 years about what was going to happen. You know, one clarification, I think because I don't take the doomer, maximalist doomer uh, stance on China, right? I don't think the government there is is particularly fragile. I think that uh, their economic numbers are not fake. The technology catch-up is real. Because I I say those things, people often, some people will accuse me of being a, you know, communist party shill or something like this. And and for example, if, as we get into Ukraine and Russia, because I don't think Russia is losing this war, people will call me a Putin shill or something like this. I just want to clarify that my Chinese heritage is completely on the anti-communist side. My father uh, was a KMT military officer before he came to the United States for graduate school. My mother's father was a general under Chiang Kai-shek, who was the leader of the nationalists and became the first president of Taiwan uh, as an independent country. And um, so I have strongly nationalist, if you know the history of China, I have strongly nationalist anti-communist credentials, but I'm a scientist, so I, I call things the way I see them. I, I have relatives living in Taiwan right now. And so obviously I have tremendous sympathies for people in Taiwan and I have tremendous sympathies for people in Ukraine, but that doesn't mean I'm gonna distort my real analysis. Uh, to let emotion or wishful thinking distort your analysis is the number one mistake that you can make. Yeah, and I, I would just add, uh, when I when I was teaching history here in Mexico, uh, and I had to review the Chinese history. I had to cover Chinese Chinese history. I became a fan of of Chiang Kai Shek and that whole nationalist that, that movement for you know uh, China becoming a republic, which ultimately failed. Which I think is is sad. But um, yeah, I mean, and the, you're saying, but the approach that you uh, lined out is the same approach I have, where take away the emotions and do a cold, sober, you know, cold calculated analysis of what's going on. And lately I've been getting these trolls and who knows, NATO trolls and 77th Brigade in Britain um, jumping in on, on the geopolitics and empire telegram and comments sections going nuts, calling me a Putin fanboy. And it's like, no, that's just not uh, the case. Uh, so, you know, you, you mentioned uh, in your blog, uh, the Taiwan conflict, you called it a frozen civil war and you are uncertain as to Taiwan's will to fight. Uh, you also said that it seems implausible to you that PRC would risk an invasion of Taiwan in the near term uh, and that PRC already has the capability to take Taiwan, but not without significant risk. So, you know, maybe we can start with the Indo-Pacific, South China Sea, Taiwan, Taiwan Straits and so forth. You know, what's your take there? Yeah. So uh, you, I think you hit the high points right there. So, um, 
I think that uh, the the best strategy, and and these guys are pretty rational, the leadership in Beijing, the best strategy for them is unless their hand is forced, and there there are a couple different things that could force their hand. The U.S. could force their hand by recognizing Taiwan. Um, the Taiwanese could force their hand by declaring independence. And at that point, the government would would have to act. They're kind of in a trap of their own rhetoric, their own creation that they they you know they view Taiwan as so fundamental to the identity as a nation that they really have they would have to act at that point. But I think if if those two if something like those two things doesn't happen, they would prefer to wait because they're just getting stronger. And uh, so you know, just as we are, you know, if you're really honest, we are powerless right now to intervene in Ukraine at a military level because it's so close to the the Russians. Their supply lines are shorter. They have much larger concentration of forces. In the same way, it would be extremely hard for the United States to intervene in a Taiwan conflict. And so, <clears throat> right now, if you look across the board at military technologies, um, the Chinese have largely caught up. With the U.S. in military technology, so they've they have kind of rough parity in quality of their fighter planes, air-to-air missiles. They have some advantages in areas like hypersonic missiles and intermediate-range ballistic missiles, which are, for example, uh, designed specifically to attack U.S. bases in the Greater Pacific or U.S. Uh, aircraft carriers. So. Uh, I would say they have prepared very carefully for uh, the eventuality that they might have to take Taiwan, but they, I think they would rather not. And, you know, knowing people in Taiwan, quite a, I have quite a bit of extended family in Taiwan, the, situ- the situation is there, there is quite complex. There are some people who really want to be independent and feel they should be independent from China. There are also a lot of people who are descended from the nationalists who in 1949, after losing the civil war in China, basically came to Taiwan and took over Taiwan. And the official position of those people has always been that the real Republic of China is Taiwan and that Taiwan is the legitimate political ruler of all of China. And so they're they're the last people who are going to want to declare independence. And I think overall, among those people who are a minority now in Taiwan, but they're not a tiny minority, they might be 30 or 40% of the population, They actually feel that because the communists have actually done a good job of building up China, I think their logic is in order to make China great again, uh, we have to give credit to these communists. They actually performed. And therefore, for Taiwan to reunify uh, with the CPC uh, under communist rule is not the end of the world because these communists are actually competent. And they are the ones who actually have brought China back onto the world stage. So I think there's a significant feeling like that in Taiwan, although in the in the in the in, among voters, it's a slight, it's a somewhat minority position. However, I think in the military, it could be, especially senior military in Taiwan, it could be a predominant position. Just a funny comment on Taiwan. I saw this morning someone was pointing out that the Russian government had published somewhere on Twitter or somewhere else uh, a list of countries they were angry with for participating in in, in the sanctions, and they listed they listed Taiwan, and people were like, "Oh, look, Russia officially recognized." I'm sure they fixed that quickly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm sure the Chinese embassy said, uh, okay, when you say list of countries, say list of countries and regions, you know, or entities that. You know, we are, we are, we are, we regard as enemies of Russia. (laughs) 
a message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. Yeah, that was hilarious. But hey, that, that's what happens uh, in, in, dipl in the diplomacy world. Um, before we move, we move on to the tech aspect, which I think is maybe the key. Uh, if you have any other comments on the military balance, navies, hypersonics, uh, I, I know a number of my guests have said, um, well, I think right now in terms of quantity, the Chinese Navy is is larger in terms of ships uh, compared to the US. And, you know, by 2030, they're saying most of the gaps uh, will be closed between the Chinese uh, and, and, you know, Western uh, militaries and the hypersonics as well. You've probably seen my interview with Andrei Martyanov, where the Russians basically led the way with the hypersonics. And he says he doesn't think the Americans have hypersonics. And I think the Chinese are, are second in line in terms of uh, you know, advancing, uh, you know, maybe they already have some hypersonics or they're close to getting them. Uh, any other thoughts on the military balance? Yeah, I like uh, to listen to Martanya because he has a unique perspective. I mean, he works in the, I think, the U.S. aerospace industry, but he has a background. And obviously, because of his Russian fluency, he's able to track what's happening in the, the Russian defense space. Um, what he says about China is not always accurate. So, for example, well, I don't want to criticize him, but uh, I think that China has deployed also hypersonic weapons. Which country is ahead in terms of hypersonic technology is a kind of complicated question. Um, I would say that um, I think the main take home for people is the nature of naval warfare is in the next war is going to be very different than what we're used to. And the reason is because using satellite imaging it's very easy to track large surface ships. So <clears throat> except in the scenario where right away, each side tries to take out the other side's satellites, which would be a disaster for the whole human species because all the debris that's created in space from that kind of uh, conflict would make it potentially extremely dangerous for humans to explore space because uh, there's, this, there's this feedback loop where you, you, you blow up a satellite and then the fragments from that sat satellite potentially mess up other satellites, which then, so you can have a runaway chain reaction where suddenly you have a whole belt of debris circulating, say, low Earth orbit, and <clears throat> it makes any kind of space launch uh, extremely dangerous at that point. So we want to avoid getting into that circumstance. Hopefully, the first step in a major power conflict won't be for each side to attack each other's satellites. 
insofar as the satellite networks are intact, both China and the US, not so much Russia right now, but China and the US have the capability to image each other's ships very, very efficiently from low Earth orbit. And what that means is that if you suppose you have a ship which is within one or 2,000 miles of the China coastline, that means a mobile launcher firing either a maneuvering ballistic missile or a maneuvering hypersonic missile, say a glide vehicle, can potentially hit that ship from one or 2,000 miles away. And if you remember the scud hunts that happened in Iraq, where the United States tried to take out the scud launchers, very unsuccessfully, actually, uh, you can see how hard it would be for a foreign military to try to stop these missile, long-range missile attacks on ships in the Western Pacific. So, you know, you, they would have to get complete, they would have to get air superiority over China, which is extremely hard. Then they would have to be able to hunt down these launchers. And in the absence of that, these launchers are a threat to any large surface ships which are operating near Japan, um, you know, anywhere even out to the sec, what's called the second island chain in, in military strategy. So the nature of naval warfare will be quite different. And from Martanyev's perspective, the point is that if, 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 for example, NATO really went big right now against Russia, I think Russia would take out U.S. aircraft carriers and British aircraft carriers very quickly at the beginning of the war. And I, I think if you, if you go very deep in this, you'll find some what I call fanboys for the U.S. defense establishment talking about SM-6 or certain anti-missile missiles that Aegis cruisers might have that they think can defeat these hypersonic and uh, maneuvering ballistic missiles. But I actually don't believe it. And I don't believe there's ever been a successful test. Of, a, of any of those defensive systems against in an actual combat situation against a maneuvering just supersonic, let alone hypersonic uh, attack missile. So I, I think, um, and you know, it would be kind of weird for us to say, hey, uh, AI and image recognition and targeting, uh, you know, autonomous targeting of drones, which could also be applied to autonomous targeting of missiles, um, has advanced so much in the last decade, it would be kind of absurd to just say, well, but that doesn't make any difference. Somehow our ships can still defend themselves. Um, anybody who's familiar with the basic physics and the technology, I think would say, although you can never be completely sure because these are classified things, right? So you don't really exactly know all the details, but somebody who's a decent technologist and understands the physics can see that there's an asymmetry here on the side of the attacker with very fast maneuverable missiles. It's much harder to defend, to hit a missile and knock it out of the air than for the missile to find a giant aircraft carrier. I, I would tend to agree with you. This has been my view that there's little to no defense against the hypersonics. I mean, even before the hypersonics, you know, we had in the 80s, the attempt to create the Star Wars system, the strategic defense initiative, which I don't think was successful. And then we have the Israeli Iron Dome. Uh, it's interesting that I just read last week that the Israelis are attempting to, uh, they're testing out using the Iron Dome um, on the ship. So to make it mobile, that's that's uh, fascinating. And there have been different views. Some people say the Iron Dome, I think officially they say the success rate is like 80, 90%, but then you ha you've had other credible people like MIT's Theodore Postal say, I think um, it's like really low, like five to 10%. So there's a lot of disagreement there. Um, and regarding space, space wars, I last spoke to Brandon Weichart on his book, um, 
regarding the, the space wars, the, the, the stuff you were beginning to outline, so people can go back and check that out. And I'll actually be speaking to him again, uh, I think in a week, on the Ides of March. Um, so uh, you did a recent podcast on semiconductors. Uh, you have a sporadic, I think, kind of podcast. You don't publish it so um, consistently. But you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on the U.S.-China competition in tech, which for me, I think is is the key battleground. Kai-Fu Lee's book on AI convinced me that China already has achieved or is soon going to achieve supremacy in AI and other important areas of tech. You know, whoever commands the algorithm commands the world now. Uh, and in the recent blog post, you commented, quote, in a decade or two, China may have 10 times as many highly able scientists and engineers as the US, comparable to the entire world, excluding China combined. Uh, already the depth of human capital in PRC is apparent to anyone clo closely watching their rates of progress in space, advanced weapons, AI, machine learning, alternative energy, material science, nuclear energy, so on, robotics. Uh, so, you know, what are your thoughts on this tech war and ultimately what it means for global supremacy? Yeah, the, 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 the biggest, the big macro observation is that, um, you know, if you look at the human capital, so where did I get this 10x number? I said, oh, there's, there's like an order of magnitude. If you define, you know, highly able, highly trained technologists, you know, you make some definition of that category of people. And you ask, well, how many are there in the US? And how many does the Chinese system produce? How many, how many does the whole world produce in aggregate? You get some really amazing numbers. And there is a German professor who actually studies this and writes research papers on this. So I'm, although my, I can make very quick, easy to understand estimates that are similar to his, he, he goes into much more detail. But roughly speaking, you can say the following. Well, you've got four times the population in China relative to the U.S. And about twice the fraction of twice the, the a student going into higher education in China is about twice as likely to be in STEM as in the United States. So that's already a factor of eight. But then when you look at international testing, so there's an OECD testing regime called PISA, which is a longstanding a uh, very sophisticated testing format where they, they create tests and then they have experts translate the tests into all the different foreign languages. And then the tests are taken under very strict supervision in all these different countries. And then they report the scores. And it's generally used as a kind of <clears throat> way to track human capital and you know, for countries to kind of see if their uh, education systems are competitive with the rest of the world. And if you look at uh, it, in the PISA system, th there's something called level six math proficiency. And level six math proficiency in the U.S. corresponds to some kid who's maybe in the top one, two, three percent of the population. Generally, that's the case in Western Europe. But if you go to China, you might find or, or Taiwan or Hong Kong, some of these places, you might find that 10 percent of the students are at level six proficiency. And I don't see how anybody's going to become a really strong technologist unless they can get to level you know, to someone who it trains PhD students in theoretical physics, level six proficiency is a little bit like kindergarten for us, right? That's just like table stakes to get started, right? So all of these indicators suggest that if you just look at human capital, there could be an order of magnitude difference between China and the US. And if you aggregate all of Europe and uh, other countries, it's not implausible, at least uh, this German academic claims that China could exceed the world aggregate uh, ex-China. And so if you're in that situation, then it, it doesn't become so shocking to you that, well, wait a minute, China has a rover that's on the moon, active on the moon. They have a rover that's active on Mars. 
they have a space station, which they built by themselves. Not, it's not the international space station, it's the Chinese space station. And pretty soon they're going to be collaborating with the Russians on it. So uh, that's just one thing. They're rapidly trying to catch up in semiconductors in terms of AI publications, or even more importantly, implementation and deployment of very large at scale AI systems. They're definitely competitive with the United States and far beyond Europe and, and other countries. So there's just a, you know, battery technology. They're in the lead in battery technology, solar technology. So you, you can just list all these key technologies for the future. And you can see that they're not necessarily ahead of the United States in, in any of them, maybe, but they are at parity with the rest of the world at almost all of them. And that's in a single polity, a single, you know, very tightly centrally controlled polity. So it's an extremely formidable force, um, you know, in the world. I, I would just add from my personal experience, I mentioned this in the previous podcast, I forget with who, but I grew up between the US uh, and Croatia, we moved back and forth. So I went to grade school, uh, secondary school in the US and in Croatia, I went to high school in Croatia. And moving back and forth, um, I noticed something even then when I was in junior high school that I think I went to fifth grade in, in Croatia. And when I went back to junior high in the U.S., in Illinois, you could, and then back to high school in Croatia, you could clearly tell it was so obvious. And this was like, you know, 20 years ago, whatever, that the math that was taught, for example, in Croatia and grade in Europe in grade five, that math was taught like in the U.S. at grade seven or eight, something like this. I don't know exactly, but there was this huge um, disconnect. And so, yeah, th that definitely exists, exists um, there. And, you know, the, people might remember the poll that was taken some years ago where they asked Chinese and American children, what do they want to be when they grow up? And the majority of the Chinese kids said they wanted to be like astronauts and stuff like this. And the American kids said they wanted to be YouTubers. Again, that's just like another uh, sign there. And I, I would recommend people don't become YouTubers because it's really hard. Um, I'm having a hard time doing that. It's a really long, hard road uphill. But I, I don't know if you recall that poll. I do recall that poll. And I think it's spot on. I mean, it's funny. My own kids in, you know, who are in high school now when they were a little bit younger, I used to, they, the, they would often come to me and say, look, this guy has, you know, 5 million views or 15 million views or PewDiePie or the, you know, the, the, the whole reference was toward that. Whereas I think in China, the, the typical kid it might idolize Kai Fu Lee, you know, or an astronaut. So it's a very different cultural situation. And whereas in the U S I think the U.S. is still very pro-technology and, uh, you know, we, we advance very quickly in terms of technology, say, relative to, say, Western Europe. But the country that believes the most in technology, in which the smart kid doesn't feel bad about getting really interested in Linux or uh, machine learning when he's in high school, that's by itself an advantage, right? <laughs> and uh, if your government is not run by a guy whose main education is as a lawyer versus say as an engineer or a scientist, that's also a huge advantage. Um, so yeah, I think those are all sort of intangible advantages that the Chinese system might have. Now, I wanna be completely fair. There are all kinds of problems with the Chinese system because the state is still involved quite a bit in their economy. So you can have pretty big distortions um, you can, they have a, they have a problem with fertility. Uh, the replacement ratio is, is, is well below, uh, one and, uh, well below, I mean, two is, is replacement level. So they're well below two. 
Um, so they, they're facing all kinds of issues. They still have a lot of poor people. They're still probably 600 million people in the countryside who are still living, you know, relatively uh, modest existences compared to urbanites or people in the United States. So, you know, they, they're not, uh, they, each of these empires that is, or each of these potential competitors for great power or hegemonic status has its own positives and negatives in the competition. And I think the fair thing is just to be aware of all of them. So w would you then say in terms of AI supremacy, fourth industrial revolution, algorithm supremacy, it's not as clear cut as maybe Kai Fu Lee paints. You would say that we're at parity and it's not as clear cut uh, the road ahead. So I, I've discussed this with Kai Fu Lee. So, so um, I, he, I think if you, if you want to make his uh, statement in the most careful way, he would say China, and I, this, this I agree with, China has a big advantage in terms of data. So training data for face recognition, for you know, auto autonomous vehicles, um, for targeting an aircraft carrier as you're moving down Mach 10 through the air. China has a big advantage in terms of the availability of certain big data sets. And they also have, they're definitely at parity or perhaps even ahead in terms of very large scale implementations, like rolling out giant cloud computing coupled to, you know, every camera, you know, in, 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 in entire province or something like this. So they're extremely good at that. When it comes to the very, very cutting edge uh, uh, AI stuff, I don't know if you're familiar with things like GPT-3 and stuff like that, but there, there are areas where the U.S. and the West are still ahead of China. And um, so it's not, certainly not the case. I would, I would say that they're way ahead of us. I would say that There are a few things, there are some things they're ahead of us in and vice versa. And there's a kind of general parity right now. But the long-term trend is in their favor just because of the availability of talent. Yeah. All right. This is something also lately that I noticed what, what you just said that, you know, after thinking about this for a while, I, I have noticed that in some areas that the U.S. does have uh, advantages, just as, as you mentioned. Uh, before we get then to Ukraine, Russia, one more question on China. Uh, for me, you know, my biggest fear Putting aside, you know, war or, or China or Russia or whatever people have, you've you probably heard me say this, but, you know, my biggest fear is the the digital currency, the cashless society, uh, what my past guest Edwin Black called the algorithm ghetto or the social credit system. We're starting to see it, you know, enacted in the West, like we've seen in Canada for, for political views or donations. You, you're getting, you're becoming uh, unpersoned, zombied, non-entitied, having your bank account frozen, being fired from your job, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, for me, I view this as potentially the most refined system of totalitarian governance humanity has uh, ever seen. What are your thoughts on, you know, all the stuff that's going on now, CBDCs, digital currencies, and, and the social credit system? So I just, again, stepping back and making a general remark, as technology gets better, as your information is in the cloud, uh, you know, your due to your banking, online, everything, all your money is digital. Of course, that those technologies make it easier and easier for the government or giant tech monopolies to control your life, to unperson you if they really want to. I think that's absolutely true. It's true in the West as well as in China, as, as we've seen. Now, I, it's hard to defeat that trend because convenience, you know, is, is, uh, is going to outweigh everything. So until you see a very dramatic situation where uh, those tools and platforms are being used in a very nasty way, until that happens, I think we're just going to slide or slouch toward this, uh, you know, total immersion 
in a digital world. Um, so I, I think that's a general trend. And it is very interesting the extent to which people in the West have reacted very strongly against it. So like, I think your own instincts, um, instincts of all the people who are kind of like anti-vaxxers and things like this, um, people who want, uh, who don't want to have a, any kind of digital health card that lets them get on an airplane or something like this. I think it's interesting that maybe that very individualistic aspect of Western society will slow it down somewhat in the West, although maybe not, you know, it's a, the, I think it's advancing just as fast in the West as in China. So I don't know exactly where it's going to end up, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. As far as digital currency, I think one of the most interesting things to keep an eye on is the digital uh, RMB. So that's the Chinese digital currency, which is backed by their central bank. And which actually is, as far as I understand, it's now being used in quite a few cities and provinces in China. And what's interesting about that one is as people get more comfortable with the RMB as a reserve currency, and that's happening. So in this current crisis that's happening in Ukraine, every time there's a, a kind of very uncertain situation in the world, a crisis or a war, certain currencies go up because people view them as reserve currencies that they're, they're likely to retain value. And then other currencies go down because in the case of the ruble, it's under attack, but even other, other ones, like maybe the, uh, I don't know what a good example would be, but maybe the Turkish lira, people just don't have confidence about if, if things get rough in the global economy, what's going to happen to that currency? Well, it's not as well defended as the dollar. It's not as well defended as the Swiss franc. It's not as well uh, defended as the, maybe the yen, which have you know, reasonably sound foundations. In the past, the RMB has not been a treated, it has not behaved like a reserve currency during times of crisis, but this time it is. So, so as people get a little more confident that, hey, China, the Chinese government, the Chinese economy is not brittle. It's not fragile. It's actually quite solid. In fact, all the material things that I have in my house, you know, actually were made there, right? And um, so people get that in their heads. Well, the next step is, hey, you know, there's a digital currency. If I just download this app from the app store, I can actually transact not in some crazy, super volatile Bitcoin, SOL coin, dog coin, you know, instead of that, I can transact much actually more conveniently in terms of the platform and, and the transaction speed and stuff like that using RMB. And that is going to be a huge, it may take, a, it may take five years, 10 years for that to get rolling, but it is going to get rolling. Um, and what's happening now is you can see the other central banks, including the U.S. central bank, are feeling pressured by what the Chinese are doing so that they need to roll out their own digital currencies. And what's interesting about this is, again, it goes back to this theme that the Chinese are actually more pro-technology, more pro-innovation than anybody in America, except maybe in Silicon Valley. Okay, So they're willing to experiment with digital RMB. They're rolling it out already all over China, and that's forcing a reactive innovation among central banks in the West. So I, I think all of that is something you should really keep an eye on. 
Yeah, and, and Mexico of all places, I, like shockingly announced uh, like a few weeks ago, maybe a month, a few months ago, that 2024, Banxico, the Bank of Mexico is going to have its digital <laughs> Mexican peso rolling out. And like nobody even is aware of these announcements. They say, oh, you know, people are demanding like nobody even knows about this in Mexico. And, you know, it's often referenced that uh, cash is used by most people here. And so it's really strange how we're, we're this cash based society here in Mexico. And all of a sudden, you know, they want to catapult us towards this digital Mexican CBDC peso. And, you know, just on the thought of the, the currencies you mentioned, the Turkish lira, I had a friend from Kazakhstan uh, spoke, you know, because I was there and we spoke uh, last week and he was concerned about the, the, the Kazakh tenge. It's getting close to 500 tenge to the dollar um, because it's linked to the ruble. So the ruble went down, the Kazakh tenge went down and you can just see that chain uh, reaction. And we can't talk about U.S., China without talking U.S., EU, NATO, Ukraine, Russia. Uh, on your blog, you said you ha haven't had time to write about this. Um, and you posted a link to, uh, to a talk with former CIA officer Ray McGovern, who has been a guest on my podcast previously, and John Mearsheimer um, and J uh, James Matlock and others. I think you just said that you did just pen a piece, uh, so I guess we'll we'll be seeing that. But you basically imply that you know they summarize your view, which is mine as well. Um, and you also add, quote, why do educated citizens of basically like the, the BRICS countries, Global South, whatever you want to call it, and other regions understand the situation better than the typical American or European? Because they are familiar with Western media propaganda and the history of U.S. imperialism. They are much more likely to understand the facts described by Mearsheimer and McGovern about the recent history of NATO, Ukraine, and Russia leading up to this conflict. And you also said that you're surprised there isn't more discussion of systemic risks from defaults of highly networked financial entities that are affected by sanctions on Russia. This looks dangerous, like the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy in 2008, end quote. So, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on what's going on in Ukraine right now? Okay, that's a that's a big ball of wax. So I, I'd like to take each of those points in turn. So first of all, I'm a huge fan of Mearsheimer. I interviewed Mearsheimer on my podcast, although we have not released that episode uh, yet. Um, now, uh, McGovern, I also respect a lot. Now people go after McGovern because, oh, he's sometimes he's interviewed on RT or some alternative, you know, podcast or something. So he must be a nut or something. You look at this guy's history. He ha was a very senior analyst. In fact, he was in charge of the president's daily brief at one point. Uh, and he was, uh, head of the entire analysis unit that studied the Soviet union at one point. So this guy's not a lightweight on the, 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 the discussion podcast, the discussion video cast that's on YouTube that I, I encourage everybody to watch this that, that you referenced and that I referenced in my blog, uh, Mearsheimer, McGovern, and a former U.S. ambassador to Moscow, to Russia, uh, sorry, to the Soviet Union, uh, they're all on that call. And also Ted Postel, the MIT missile scientist. So it's an all-star cast and you don't hear any of the four disagreeing with the rest, Okay. So I think every American needs to watch that to really understand what has been happening regarding NATO expansion and specifically in Ukraine, say, in the last roughly eight years. And I think most Americans are not following it. Um, I followed it, A, because of my general interest in geopolitics, but also because I had a PhD student when I was a professor at Yale and a postdoc when I was a professor at Oregon who are both Ukrainians uh, one is from Western Ukraine and the other one is from Kiev. 
And uh, the guy from Kiev was trained at MIPT, which is one of the most elite Russian physics institutes. So these guys have very, very intimate knowledge of what's going on there. So I, I've kind of been following it for a while. Um, what most Americans don't realize is that there was a legitimately elected government that was friendly to Russia that was overthrown in a coup in 2014. Subsequently, Putin invaded uh, Crimea and took it back for, for the Russians. There has been an ongoing war in the eastern part of Ukraine with many ethnic Russians being killed. I think, you know, the semi-official numbers, you're talking 10 or 15,000 of these civilians killed mainly by shelling from the Ukrainian armed forces. There was a military defeat of the Ukrainian military. I guess this was 2014 by some of these, you know, sort of pro-ethnic, pro-Russian forces in the East. And that, that forced something called the Minsk II agreement. And, and the, the, if, if we had simply pressured Ukraine to enforce the things they had agreed to in Minsk II, and I believe France and Russia also signed on to this, then we would not be in the position that we're in today. So, you know, I, I believe that the U.S. has treated Ukraine as an opportunity to place pressure on Russia by building up the Ukrainian military. Ukrainian military has regularly trained with NATO. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers were deployed in Afghanistan with NATO forces. So there's, there's a very friendly relationship between the current government of Ukraine and NATO and the West, which the Russians regard as a, as a threat. And the U.S. pursued those policies, even though very serious people like Mearsheimer, like many uh, former secretaries of defense, like our current CIA director, who was previously ambassador to Russia, <laughs> stationed in Moscow, all of those people said, hey, oh, this is a mistake. We should not be fooling around in Ukraine. The Russians regard that as their uh, a red line, and this could easily lead to war. And so if, if, you, if you look at the background of this, it's, it's not surprising that we ended up in a war. And, and the idea that we're only in a war because Putin suddenly went crazy like three weeks ago um, is crazy. There's a whole history behind this that I think every American who's interested in this should study. They can study it just by watching that one video, for example, or reading a few articles, but not articles in the mainstream U.S. press. Um, and they'll see this long history. And I think it'll be seen as a huge st strategic error by the United States in a moment where when they look forward 10 years, they have to consider the possibility of facing this really peer competitor in the form of China. What they should have done is made nice with Russia, tried to peel Russia off its alliance uh, with China, but instead they have cemented now, cemented in blood um, this uh alliance between Russia and China. And it'll be seen as a huge geostrategic mistake, I think, in the future. Yeah, you touched on my, my next question. I was just going to comment uh, as well. I, I would say that if we looked at look at things objectively, it's, it's, you can't say this today, but it seems Russia is defending itself. Russia is, is in the right. We were aggressive. We um, you know, we were pushing NATO and you have all these credible, credible people saying this McGovern, uh, Mearsheimer. I've, I just recently watched other credible people saying the exact same thing. I can't, I can't even remember. There's just so many interviews, but, um, I also went in 2017 to, to Russia with Sharon Tennyson's, uh, citizens for, uh, what is it? This is, uh, 
Center for Citizens Initiatives. Ray McGovern went the previous year, uh, and we went all over um, Russia. We met Gorby Gorbachev, who I think just turned 91, and we met uh, Vladimir Posner. And I went uh, with my small group where we broke off. I went to visit uh, Tatarstan, uh, Kazan. And there we met some Crimeans, and they were all saying basically that, you know, most of Crimea is, you know, Russians, Russian speaking, and the by far the large majority wanted to go back to Russia. So, again, if you look at take away the emotions, and if you look at things objectively, like I, I agree with that, you know, if, if Kosovo can be peeled from, um, you know, Serbia, then, you know, Donetsk and, and Lugansk, you know, the same. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of do double standards and hypocrisy. And m my next question was regarding China and, and Russia. Some Western... Could I, uh -huh, go ahead. Could I just comment on what you just said, though, a little bit? I think it's best for people, even though one can make uh, an argument on the grounds of morals or, you know, the right of Russia or Putin to defend themselves, to have a buffer zone, to a sphere of interest, to defend their national interests against maybe NATO missiles placed right on their border. One can make all those arguments, but it's even better, I would say, just to step back and say, let's not talk about right or wrong. Let's just say great powers have interests. And if you push a great power too far, you're going to get a war. You're going to get an, a, a very nonlinear reaction. And if you take it just purely from the U.S. point of interest, so suppose we don't I'm not recommending we feel this way, but suppose you're a heartless person. You don't care about the Ukrainians. You just don't care. OK, but you do care about the well-being of, of Americans, of American citizens. And, you know, we've got a big con uh, competition coming up with China. Then you might just say we would rather have the Russians on our side than not. And just from that, just from that, there's no morals. There's no it's just like, look, we're planning, you know, we're about to play basketball and we need that guy on our team. No, let's not make him mad and have to join the other team. Let's have him on our team. Okay, we might have to give up a little bit. We might tell the Ukrainian government, hey, make nice with Russia. You know, you know, we're, we're going to kind of cool off our relationships with you. I think all of the realists, foreign policy realists, so that includes Mearsheimer, that includes Sam Nunn, that includes uh, former secretaries of defense McNamara and Perry, that includes former ambassadors to Russia, all kinds of foreign policy realists said, we should try to make nice with Russia. And making nice with Russia is not maximalizing our relationship with Ukraine, uh, making noises about NATO accession for Ukraine. Those are just all the wrong things to do when you've got bigger fish to fry. So of course, we can make all kinds of uh, arguments about moral equivalence. But when you get into that, then people just say, well, Putin's an evil guy. He kills journalists. And he, you know, at that point, I don't think anybody can really come to any, it's hard to convince anybody on the other side that you're right. Once you get into that, because it's, it's more intrinsically emotional. But if you just say, look, let's look out for Americans, for American strategy, <laughs> let's try to make Americans safe. What's the right thing to do? Well, the right thing to do is be realistic and try to restrain the re Ukrainians and hope that they have a kind of rapprochement with Russia, and then maybe we can peel the Russians off for our own purposes for our future confrontation with China. I, I think that nobody, I think you have to be an idiot to, you have to literally have a you know low IQ not to understand that argument. Whereas the other kind of moral argument, people just get lost because their emotions start welling up. Yeah, Sorry, I, I, no, I, I totally, 
I totally agree with you. And yeah, that happens. I generally don't play that game regarding the emotional aspect. And, you know, it just becomes he said, she said. And like, I don't discount that, you know, the Russian government has killed uh, dissidents. But then again, these people fail to point out that so has the West. You know, look at Julian Assange, look at Michael Hastings, uh, who died, right? Right. We we can, yeah, I, you know, I, I actually think, I mean, if you look at the number of people bombed in the last say since world war ii it's it's all i mean the u.s is responsible for 90 percent of the bombs dropped on people right so but um i do want to say one more thing which you which just react to one other thing you said which is that in the blog post i point out that if you go to BRICS countries or developing countries or global south countries none of them have any difficulty understanding the actual situation right now in ukraine and russia whereas which is contrary to what the just nonstop propaganda that we're getting in the West asserts. So on the blog post that that you mentioned, I have a nice video where it's it's Indian TV. Okay, this is India. This is TV produced in India for Indians. And there are two generals from the retired generals from the Indian army analyzing the war in Ukraine. And if you just took the text of what they said and you put it on Twitter, you'd be banned because they'd say these are Putinists. These people, these people are saying the Russian army is trying to not kill civilians. They made a mistake going into soft in the early days of the war. They want to win this war without destroying Ukraine. These are Indians. Okay. So, so the thing is that the rest of the world is watching this and they can see what it really looks like is the West has been bullying the Russians since the Soviet Union fell apart and they kept doing it. They should have let up. After the Soviet Union fell apart, now the Russians have finally recovered. Let them have their dignity. Let them be a respected nation. Maybe we don't like their government or their leader, but there's just a certain amount of respect that uh, we should give them. The rest of the world can see this. It's only the Europeans and the Americans that can't see this. And really, actually, the people who can't see it are the are the imperialists, the people who were former colonialists and imperialists. They just cannot see that the rest of the world understands this from the Russian point of view. I, I had a student, a former student of mine uh, at the university here in Mexico, who I think he went through the London School of Economics. So he's been he's been uh, expunged through that liberal globalist Western um, imperial machine. And he was commenting, criticizing, criticizing on my Facebook and a clip uh, surfaced just uh, recently. Maybe you've seen it from 2015, where George Soros was saying George Soros in the video himself, like you can't it's not conspiracy theory. He openly said that. Uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed, that in Russia, he, George Soros, came in and picked up the pieces of the Soviet empire, and he said, which is now the Soros empire, speaking out about Russia. And it's like, you cannot get any clearer uh, than this to as to what's going on. And so the people from this Western imperial, liberal, globalist way of thinking can't comprehend. And it's like, I often cannot continue the discussion with them anymore, because it's just like, no matter what you say, they don't recognize um I I totally agree with you. I mean, I just I just feel it's some it's a it's a it's a mental blind spot that all of these people have. You know, it could even be a leftist professor at a U.S. university, but they totally buy into the neoliberal, you know, worldview and they literally can't understand. You know, on, on one day they'll come into class and defend the global south and talk about how U.S. corporations are so bad. We're exploiting people in India and Bangladesh. But then if they were to turn on Bangladeshi TV or Indian TV and see how the people there are talking about the Ukraine conflict, they would they would just their brains would just explode. 
Right. So um, anyway, that that's a point I just wanted to emphasize. Yeah, it'd be total meltdown. Cognitive, cognitive uh, dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. So, yeah, and of yeah. course, Latin America, Central and Latin America, they know exactly what the U.S. has been doing, overthrowing democratically elected government, governments, corporate, you know, pursuing U.S. corporate interests to the, you know, to the detriment of local people in those countries. I mean, they're familiar with it. Yeah. And uh, just the, the last thing on China that you mentioned, um, you know, there are some Western analysts such as Evelina Chakarova, who uh, I appreciate very much reviews, but I still she's very close to that Western imperial camp. I mean, she works in European security and she recently tweeted the idea that China might betray Russia and go with the West. I think this is wishful thinking. And, you know, well, what, what, what you're saying is it seems uh, what others are saying that really and it, she created the term dragon bear, right? Like um, writing on the backs of Halford McKinder's idea of world, world island Eurasia. It seems to have cemented, you know, Russia and, and China. You know, whoa, what's your final thought there that really they are coming into being the East? Yeah, it, it shows how uh unprofessional how 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 limited our leadership is that blinken went to china right before the crisis blew up and tried to get the chinese to back the so back the russians down and he didn't realize that you know uh you know putin must have when he was there for the olympics discussed maybe not the details maybe not for sure i'm going in but you know really i don't think he would have made this move without some level of chinese backing so i think i think that's fair um I think that the U Russia and China are very complementary because Russia is resource rich. China has a huge manufacturing economy, high tech economy. And um, I think that uh, the border issues that they had, you know, in the 80s when there was a Sino-Soviet split, those have largely been resolved. And they're not really when you, you know, if you, you can actually go and listen to what Chinese strategic planner, well, if, I guess if you can translate some Chinese into English, you can see what the Chinese strategic planners care about. And they're not trying to recover Vladivostok. Okay, <laughs> They don't care. They can't even get Chinese people to move into the Northeast. All the Chinese people are emigrating from that area. It's like kind of industrial wasteland up there. They don't want that territory. They, they do want to have a good trading relation so they can buy the really buy the materials from the Russians. But they don't want to conquer, uh, you know, it's insane to uh, invade a country with thousands of nuclear weapons to get some forests and timber and oil. <laughs> no, it just doesn't make any sense. So China and Russia are natural partners. They have complementarities uh, in their strengths and weaknesses. With a tight integration between the Russians and the Chinese, then the uh, threat of naval blockade, say blocking oil from the Middle East to China is no longer viable. I mean, that was what forced the Japanese into the war, actually, in World War II, is the U.S. cut off their oil supplies. So um, I think this is a huge mistake. And I think this is going to, that central region, which you're quite familiar with, Kazakhstan, et cetera, this is going to accelerate the BRI, I think, substantially. Because now Russia, and, for a little while, when the BRI was first launched, the Russians didn't quite know what to think of it. And there was a little bit of, they they actually had a competing kind of entity and there was some competition. But now I think uh, you're going to see just tighter and tighter Eurasian integration. The main question is Germany. A lot of people think this whole thing, you know, to the extent that the Americans caused this Ukraine issue to blow up, it was to force Germany back into NATO and to, to reduce the strength of connections between Germany and Russia, but also Germany and China. So the big swing entity in this is going to be Germany. It's interesting to see how 
what's going to happen there? They reacted quite strongly in and you know in, in, against Russia's you know invasion, but on the other hand, they're looking at all of their manufacturing industries being non-competitive if they no longer have access to cheap Russian energy. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the French and the Russians, uh, French and Germans do. Yeah, I would just add about that. You know, people are Westerners are again spouting a lot of crazy ideas that China is going to take the north uh, eastern parts of, of Russia. And I mean, look, I've I've lived in the Gobi, uh, I've lived in the northern tip uh, of where Siberia is, you know, like North Kazakhstan, just cl really close to the Russian border. I love the cold. I love living there. I'm just a weird kind of person. Um, most people don't want to live there. You know, my I was um, torturing my wife for the few years that we lived there. And uh, yeah, I just kind of don't see them really interested in that territory. Who knows? You know, maybe they'll surprise us one day. Um, do you have any final thought then before we move on to my last one or two off topic questions? Any other thoughts on, on Russia and China? And, you know, if, if we're going to see things go uh, nuclear? <laughs> Well, I think there's always a heightened chance of of uh, escalation. You know, when you have people talking about planes being delivered to the Ukrainians and all kinds of no flies, I mean, that was just insane. Um, I think there is enough professionalism and intelligence left in the military to keep things, you know, from an outright confrontation between NATO or U.S. forces and Russian forces. So I, I hope that we don't end up in a nuclear war. Um, what I'm looking at right now is systemic risks to the financial system because um, people are very unsure how these sanctions are actually going to be enforced, whether there'll be follow-on sanctions. For example, Russian energy right now is still okay, but uh, you know, there's a move in the US, for example, to sanction uh, Russian energy. Um, and we could have, if, if you remember back, maybe you're too young to remember, but if you remember the financial crisis in 2008, the uh, interconnectedness of financial firms through uh, contracts and obligations is so strong that if you suddenly just remove one node from a very complicated network, all of a sudden there's just enormous uncertainty that people won't, don't know whether uh, certain entities have, will have to go into default and whether certain contracts or insurance will be honored. So you can have a kind of systemic meltdown um, just from something unforeseen, like, oh, we disconnected all these Russian banks and all these secondary entities are now bankrupt. And actually the Russian state now has impounded all these, <clears throat> uh, all this property from foreign companies operating in Russia. They are gonna declare bankruptcy. So the, the knock-on effects of that are extremely uh, unknown at this point. And for example, you have Gazprom, I think as of this weekend, at least I talked to some traders and risk managers who are uh, in hedge funds. I think Gazprom was trading at a penny a share. So the implied valuation of Gazprom was $250 million on the London exchange. So people had just basically left it for debt and also Spurbank, which is, I think, the largest bank in Russia. So it's really not clear how this all this is going to play out. There's, there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of chop and turbulence in the coming months for sure. Yeah, the financial aspect is, is very worrying, especially throwing on top the cyber pandemic talk, the cyber attacks, um, banks being offline, you know, having you know the worst case having our bank accounts wiped and all kinds of crazy stuff can be uh, can happen um i guess i was going to ask you uh you were a victim of a cancel culture and lately it's for me it seems that the people who are now being canceled are are usually 
you know, I, I've had on Michael Rechtenwald, who in a way was run out of NYU. Uh, Mark Crispin Miller, who I'm a fan of, who also was like, he was run out of NYU. And um, I don't think the details matter so much. Just the fact that, that this is happening. And it, lately, it just seems to me that the people who are being canceled generally um, are, it's happening you know, it's not fair. And it's what they're accused of is just, you know, it's just basically going against the grain or it's misconstrued or whatever. So if, if you could tell us, you know, what happened briefly, you know, you're, with your experience regarding cancel culture. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I, I won't necessarily go into huge detail because there's obviously a lot we could say we could spend a whole podcast <laughs> discussing it, but you, you can follow up if any of this is interesting to you, but uh, until summer of 2020, which was, you know, when the George Floyd tragedy occurred, I was the vice president for research at Michigan State. And um, if you're not in academia, then the even the position, what does vice president of research mean? Uh, it means that you're uh, overseeing the entire research enterprise at the university. And at Michigan State, that was something like $700 million a year in expenditures. Um, so it was a pretty high level position. and um, But all high level positions in universities now, unfortunately, are politicized. And so when the George Floyd tragedy happened, lots of far left woke political groups use that opportunity, not just at our university and not just at universities, but in other settings to attack people that they thought uh, that they didn't like or that they thought were their enemies. And um, so, you know, the attacks made on me were pointing to certain blog posts I had made. And some of these blog posts went back to like 2007 or something like this. And um, were attacking me as, for example, attacking me as a racist because um, I work in computational genomics. I use AI to, um, you know, build predictors for a phenotype of an, uh, an organism like a human based on their DNA. And um, one of the things they didn't like, it was kind of funny that the, this is something that they would attack. But in 2007, uh, it was actually controversial that, so the first scientific papers were being written that, oh, if you show me someone's DNA and I've done some machine learning on maybe a few hundred or a few thousand different genomes, I can tell that this is the genome of somebody with uh, Japanese ancestry, or I can tell this is somebody with African ancestry or something. And the reason it sounds so ordinary to us today is because obviously many people, actually tens of millions of people have paid money to 23andMe or Ancestry to send the DNA and then to get back like, oh, you're 60% French and you have a little Moroccan heritage, you know, and if you just stop for a minute, you think, wait a minute. So they're telling me that based on the statistical, you know, aspects of your DNA, I can kind of tell what region, what your ancestry is, what region of the world you're from. Um, when the scientific papers were first written, like in 2007, about this, the social scientists, the far left social scientists who had been teaching for 20 years that there's no genetic basis for race, got outraged because they said, well, wait a minute, no, no, race is a social construct. You can't say that the DNA tells you this guy is from Africa. And so that was actually controversial for a while. It's still actually controversial among social scientists, but it's very well understood by people in genomics. And so, for example, these students that were attacking me, this Twitter mob claimed that I was a racist because, oh, I had blogged about not even my research because I didn't publish any of these papers. These were papers published like in Nature by other people that I had blogged about. 
And so they call me a racist for having Steve, you know, is, you know, obviously a racist because he believes he doesn't accept that race is only a social construct or something like this. And those kinds of flimsy allegations were enough to stampede, uh, you know, my boss, the president of the university to the point where he said, oh, Steve, I have to ask you to resign because uh, this is such a, you know, fraught uh, political climate right now that it looks like you've 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 written some stuff on your blog that's unacceptable or something without even really understanding that everything I wrote was scientifically correct and not even my research. So um, it's it. I think I tried to document it quite thoroughly, and and the people supporting me at the university started a petition campaign to support me. And some of the people who signed the petition from outside the university, including people like Steve Pinker and uh, leading AI researchers, and I think a former dean of Harvard Medical School signed my petition. The whole thing makes, if a historian were to go back and look at that event, they would say this is an example of maybe one of the best documented examples of woke craziness circa 2020. Sort of like if you go back to the Cultural Revolution in China, you say like, oh my God, I can't believe that actually happened. Well, it actually did happen. So you know, being academics, we actually documented this uh, in extreme detail. So you can go back and see like every single allegation about me uh, is not just wrong, but actually stupid, like literally stupid, like like they couldn't read properly what I was writing on my blog or something. So but that's what that's what can happen in 2020 America. In yeah, that's, America. yeah, that's crazy. I, that's one of the reasons I don't want i'm trying not to go back into uh, education which was my profession and even outside of america you know it's not just limited anymore to the united states it's coming here to to mexico and and it's just spreading slowly to other countries this woke uh, ideology and i guess my last question this was interesting because i I, when i looked you up I, i found this information i'm not sure if you were a student of richard Feynman's or you just studied at the campus when he was teaching um it was Richard, uh, the famous uh, physicist Richard Feynman's interest in Tenu Tuva, which led me to develop develop my interest in Central Asia. Tuva is right next to Mongolia. I think it's still part of it's considered part of the Russian uh, Federation, and so you know it got me interested in Central Asia, namely Mongolia and Kazakhstan, two countries which I've called home. And later on, I saw that great documentary called Genghis Blues, produced by I think two Croatian American brothers, which documented blind blues musician Paul Pena's trip to uh, Tuva. And, you know, after that, I was off to off to the step to Mongolia. Can you tell us uh, anything interesting about Richard Feynman? Well, the, the book that was written about his trip was called Tuva or Bust. And uh, that was written right around the time that I knew him. So I knew him in the um, mid 80s uh, when I was an undergrad at Caltech. And um, the whole reason I went to Caltech was largely because of Feynman, or at least I became aware of Caltech because of Feynman. So in the physics community, he was not, you know, he was not as nearly as famous as he is now. In fact, he was totally unknown outside the physics community. And then within physics, he was somewhat well known. Um, But uh, I became aware of him already when I was in high school because of uh, something called the Feynman Lectures, some very famous, uh, a famous course that he had given at Caltech for beginning physics students. And the, the, the lectures themselves are, you know, um, highly prized by students these days. Um, so I wanted to go there and, um, you know, I, um, he was already pretty far along. He died not that long. He died when I was in graduate school. So not that long after I knew him at Caltech, unfortunately. Um, but um, it was really a great experience. And I think one of the things I remember very well is that 
he loved talking to undergraduates and talking to students. And he used to run something called Physics X, which was like a, a course, but with no course number, Physics X. And it would meet once a week in uh, this lecture hall in the high energy physics building at Caltech. And anybody could come, but it was mainly supposed to be undergraduates, although some grad students and other people snuck in. But then when you went, you could ask him any question. You could say, oh, can you explain, you know, how do ferromagnets work? Or, you know, uh, what what are the difficulties with uh, hypersonic missiles communicating through the plasma layer when they go through the atmosphere? You know, and he would he would actually, in his style, if you've ever watched video of him, he's got this very uh, great style of communication. Uh, he would go to the blackboard and just start explaining stuff to you. And sometimes he didn't know and he would try to figure it out. So you got to see this mind, this amazing mind churning. So that was one of the great, great experiences of my uh, early education. Yeah, great uh, scientist. Um, any final thought for us then? Well, I'll give you one final Feynman thought. So one of the famous Feynman quotes is, um, uh, let's see, how's it go? Um, you must never, let's see. Oh gosh, I can't believe I can't remember the exact quote now. Um, uh, well, anyway, let, let, let me not try to do the quote because uh, it's forgot. I guess I'm having a senior moment. I'm not, I can't remember it. But he had this perspective that it's very easy to fool yourself. And you have to, you're the easiest person to fool, he would say. So the number one thing that a scientist has to do is try to detach your analysis from your emotions, from your psychology, how you want the result to come out. Russia's winning, Russia's losing, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, Putin good, Putin bad. You disconnect all of that. And the highest level of thought is to be able to disconnect from all that and just look at it scientifically, look at the evidence and come to an unbiased conclusion. And that, that has been an extremely strong guide for me and has sometimes gotten me into trouble because obviously some truths are not socially acceptable. So you have to, you have to keep them uh, hidden. This has intuitively always been my uh, approach um, personally, as well as with geopolitics and empire. And I hope more people start to think about this uh, instead of getting so uh, having this binary type of thinking you, you know with us or against us you know it's not th things are more nuanced and and yeah so um what are you working on um that you'd like us to know about and you know where's the best place for people to follow your work well if you're interested in what we've been discussing there's more content like this on my blog and hopefully you can put a link in the show notes also my Twitter feed and also the podcast that I've, I've sort of restarted it now and I'm doing it fairly frequently, like once a week. So um, people might be interested in uh, catching some of those podcasts. The name of the podcast is Manifold One. And uh, so uh, I think people who like your show might also like some of the content that I produce. Yeah, I'll definitely include the links, uh, all those links in the description so people can find them. Lately, I've been I've been doing too many. I think I've been doing like five recording, five podcasts a week. I, I got to chill out a bit. It's been it's been a lot. Um, all right, Steve Sue, it's it's absolutely been fascinating talking to you um again everyone follow his twitter blog uh, podcast and thank you for both listening to and being a guest on geopolitics and empire been a pleasure i hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast the website is geopoliticsandempire.com and i encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines the newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. 
We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.